The restaurant industry has been one of COVID-19's biggest victims. 800,000 restaurant jobs in Canada were decimated in March. At the end of April, an industry group in the hospitality community in Toronto predicted that one out of every two independently owned restaurants will permanently close its doors if improvements aren't made by early summer. The numbers wildly concerning, especially for those who have made a life in the food and beverage scene, like my dear friend, Trevor Louie. Trevor is a notable foodpreneur in Toronto with 20 years behind the scenes of some of the largest events in the country. With the future of events and restaurants out of our control, Trevor joins us to talk about the toll a global crisis is having and will continue to have in the food world. This truly is the future of restaurants with Trevor Louie. first off, thank you so much for joining us. I know uh, it's been a challenging time for a lot of people. Schedules are kind of all over the place. So really appreciate you taking the time. How are you doing? Under the circumstances, I'm doing pretty well. You know, just trying to figure out the next days on how to survive through the pandemic. Just like the rest of us. Absolutely. It's a kind of a day-to-day game, isn't it? It is, but it's moving pretty fast. I mean, a lot of it is a waiting game, but uh, as you guys probably know, a lot of us in many different industries are waiting for the right levels of help. Time is ticking real fast. Let's kind of start from the beginning. I mean, I think it was mid-March where shit got really real. And we all realized that um, we were all going to be affected in many, many ways because of this pandemic. But for you, when did you first catch wind of the pandemic, um, or I should say the virus. And when did you really consider making some shifts in your life or planning accordingly? If we were all watching the same news, we were watching from afar what was happening in Wuhan, China, and little bits and pieces of it were starting to pop up in North America and Europe. End of January, February, we were already feeling some of the adverse effects, particularly at the Asian community. Living downtown Toronto, I frequent Chinatown quite a bit. I have a lot of places I do business in and places that I visit to support. And with each visit I went, it seemed like there was less people not only dining, but just frequenting the area outside. And then in speaking to some of the businesses, closures were starting to happen because sales were dropping rapidly based on whatever was being communicated by the news. Now, whether it was, you know, real news or fake news, it was enough to scare people off. So I think that was, you know, Coming off the Restaurant Canada show, which was the end of February, first week in March, we still congregated for that show. There was a big decision on whether or not the show was going to carry on. And I was one of the culinary curators this year. So the show went on and it went on very successfully. It was probably one of the most successful ones that I've been a part of and attendance was at a record high. I remember on the last day of the show, a Michelin star chef drew from Spain, Barcelona, and his crew were in town to do a special event. They had contacted me to have dinner. And I said, uh, why don't I take you guys out to dinner at a restaurant of my choice? Uh, and I knew that they loved Asian food. So I actually took them to Chinatown, not knowing that less than two weeks later, what was going to happen in Spain, what was happening in China, and eventually what was happening in North America. So, you know, that was sort of, I don't know, I want to say it was foreshadowing, but I mean, to go into a restaurant on a Tuesday night, that's generally quite filled on most nights, uh, we were one of three tables in there. And at that point, I had seen what was beginning to happen. And so that next weekend, I actually had a business trip in Oregon. 
And I had to make a decision on whether or not I needed to travel to Oregon because I was one of the keynote speakers at a conference. So I actually had got on a conference call with the organizers. They assured me that it was going to continue and they had safety measures. And, you know, at that point, the Pacific Northwest, the only area that was reporting cases was Seattle. And so I was in suburban Oregon, about three hours away from Portland, and there weren't going to be too many people from the Seattle area, although there were a few. And so at that point, we really didn't know anything about what this virus was all about. So I made the trip. It was there. I got there on a Saturday, planned to fly out on the Monday, which I did. So I was there for literally one and a half days, flew out of Salt Lake. By the time I got to Toronto, that was the night that the report came that Rudy Gobert, who was a player for the Jazz, who incidentally were playing the Raptors that night, tested positive for COVID. And then the league that night decided to suspend all game operations. And I think that was sort of like the tipping point, right? You're a huge Raptors fan. I don't know anyone who actually supports the Raptors the way in which that you do, which says a lot. So was that the turning point for you when the league announced that it would be shutting down indefinitely? I think what it did for me and maybe for other people was that there was something for everyday citizens to relate to, right? And the NBA being a such a large entertainment conglomerate, providing, you know, daily content for people because sports is a rallying point for people, right? It's, it, it creates community. That was a big move. And we always know that the NBA out of all the sports leagues, at least in my opinion, has been the most progressive out of all of them. And for them to make that immediate decision to shut down game operations within 24 hour span, I think sent a message. And by sending that message, I think that started to sort of lay the groundwork for what was coming because they obviously saw something that the rest of us weren't seeing. What was the first thing that went through all of our minds was, okay, Rudy Gobert had it. He played the Raptors that night. Oh my gosh, I was in the airport on the same plane with Leo Routens because he was leaving Utah at the same time. And so you, you go through your mind about who was in that arena that night, who from the arena was in on the plane. I was on the plane. I came back. And so you start to formulate things on, well, how is this going to affect me the second I land in Toronto? And another thing is, you know, I worked through SARS in 2002. At that point, you know, SARS was probably the biggest sort of epidemic slash pandemic that we experienced in Toronto from a health perspective. So we had a measuring stick, but I don't think any of us thought it was going to be as big as it is now. I had actually de determined that before anything was announced by our municipal or provincial or, or federal governments, that I thought that I was going to take the step and begin isolation actually that week, like on the Friday, for some odd reason. Uh, and then when I made that decision, which I didn't announce to anyone, events that I had planned for St. Patrick's Day weekend were canceled. And so I was like, oh my gosh, I'm ahead of the curve on something for the first time. And then that's sort of how everything just, I guess, progressed from there. Then we had the lockdown shortly thereafter. So Trevor, I'd have to agree 100% that the moment Adam Silver sort of suspended the NBA season, it was kind of a whoa, because just before that, March Madness had been initially to be played without fans. And then it was like, okay, we're going to cancel that. But after the NBA, just everything followed. The NHL followed, MLS followed, events all around the world followed. I remember that moment so well, I'll never forget it. The immediate fallout after that was that businesses across the board started shutting down. And in particular, the hospitality and events and culinary and restaurant industries have been certainly hit the hardest for yourself, for your friends, for so many of your contemporaries in those industries. Talk about the chaos of that moment. You know, how bad might this be to, wow, this is becoming very real? And then that sort of 
I guess, couple days and then the couple weeks that followed where everything changed. I have a unique perspective on this because I actually come from the hospitality side of things of live events. You know, I worked in live events for two and a half decades, mostly in large hotels, convention centers, or casinos. And so part of my business was still in the business of producing live events. And so my business actually straddled the two areas of hospitality. One was which uh, was restaurants and catering, and the other was producing live events. And so I was, you know, actively listening and discussing with people simply because I had business on both sides on, you know, what we were anticipating. As a person who sat on a global board for the largest industry, industry association for live events, we wanted to make sure as a voice for the community that, you know, we were encouraging live events up until the point where we felt that from a health perspective and what our government and health officials were telling us remained to be safe. And so there was this real fine line on, you know, what was that breaking point? And then from the restaurant side, it was the same thing. I'm trying to like pinpoint sort of like the day it all fell down. But when the government announced that, you know, essentially everything was going to have to be shut down, there was immediate panic. My commercial kitchens here in the city are located in a public event space. So it's not a standalone space. So I don't have independent access to my space. So that event facility, because it's on city property and shared with other public access and retail commercial spaces had to be shut down. So I immediately lost access to that. And there was panic because I'm like, wow, that's where a good percentage of my income would come from, which is food sales, catering. You know, we're not even at the point where people were starting to pivot and change their business model to sort of keep up with paying their bills. And that was the same voice across the board. The conversations, the text messages, the DMs, the emails, the phone calls were ramping up. I was on the phone with you know, Restaurants Canada and other colleagues because all of a sudden the events that we had booked for the foreseeable future of anywhere from four to three months were being canceled. And then now beyond that, right? So there's certainly panic because the panic behind the fixed cost of what it takes for us to operate or maintain these operations is enormous. And that is sort of the struggle of where we are today. And we are now, I don't know, seven weeks into this, and we still really don't have a clear plan of how we can save our hospitality communities. Yeah, I think it was the end of March. Chef David Chang did an interview with a large publication. And he said that without government intervention, there will be no service industry. And we've seen our government here make an act, I would say an active effort um, to do what they can. Do you think they're doing enough to either help small business owners that are in the restaurant and hospitality industry or just to keep things afloat for the time being? I don't want to fault government for their attempts at trying to save different streams of industries. And I'm speaking, you know, for myself and for the most part, a, a large number of businesses. I mean, we have to be in a position where everyone is put in the same box and parameters so that whatever the government is offering can be taken advantage of and has the benefit of everyone, right? And so as someone who pays commercial lease, I cannot expect my landlord to take the hit if I'm asking for them to defer lease payments or rent, right? Someone's gonna give them relief. And so where does that relief come from? So the relief is gonna come from the government. So government to bank or bank to 
landlord, landlord, trickle down to tenants. The challenge is, is we have a program now where the government is saying, okay, we've got this program. Government will pay 50% of commercial leases. Um, the landlord will pick up 25% and the tenant will pick up 25%. Right now, the statistic is that 80% of landlords are refusing to apply for this subsidy. So there's no mandate on it. April 1 came, May came. Uh, we are not a overly heavy liquid business, right? We don't have burn rates like a lot of big companies to do. Really, I'm speaking a lot on independent small business owners. You know, larger chains, not all of them, but some of them have a little bit more of a war chest. Some have received subsidies, particularly in the U.S., and we don't have the burn rate. You know, we might have one month of burn rate, but we also went right into tax season, right? So corporate tax, you know, HST, payroll tax, utilities, TMI, lease, payroll, right? So all that without any income. And so there's this fallacy out there in the marketplace that, listen, we appreciate people buying takeout, but if you take a look at a restaurant where takeout represented 5 to 12% of its business, and everything else is gone, and now they're relying on that 10% to be 100% of the business, it's not, the math isn't there. It's not making it up, right? And so that's where the trouble is. And then you've got third-party delivery platforms who are dinging you for 30% of your gross. You know, people are saying, well, why weren't you complaining during the regular time when you were doing these companies for delivery platform? Well, back then, we had an operating business that filled our dining rooms, and so the money we were making on third-party delivery platform was what we called found money because there was no additional fixed cost. Now we have all the fixed costs with no revenue coming in except for that 10% of takeout. And so how do we operate with the margins that are as slim as they are already if we don't get help? We don't need loans. We don't need $40,000 loans, which first of all are very hard to qualify for, number one. Number two, great, 10,000 of it is forgivable, you still got to pay 30000 of it. We don't need rent deferred because if you defer my rent for six months and I come back into business, you're going to put that six months of rent back into my remaining six months. So I got to pay it back anyway. So we don't need more credit. You know, and I think I'm not speaking just on behalf of restaurant and hospitality owners. I'm speaking on the nail salons and, you know, the little mom and pop shops that sell buttons on the corner. Whatever it is, we all need some level of help where it's not, here's more credit. So we need a bigger solution. These challenges, you can't plan for them. And just uh, knowing you and seeing a lot of your colleagues post on social media right now, there seems to be a level of optimism despite the challenges that you are facing. How are you kind of going about your day-to-day right now, Trev, maintaining that level of hope when you're faced with so many challenges? And like you said, maybe not the solution that you, you need. Not everyone has uh, you know the same opportunities or sort of the same flexibility on their business model on, on what they do on a day-to-day basis. For me, I lost access to my commercial kitchen, so I couldn't even go in to do takeout if I wanted to. You know, I can't go in and do meal planning or, or recipe kits for people, even though I wanted to. And so I had to essentially think of that business as something that's gone right now and maybe start to formulate what that might look like when this is all over. For me, I had to find different outlets and it was going back to seeing what I could do virtually, what I could do for brands in terms of creating content, recipe creation. And we can talk about some of those programs that I'm working on, which are really great for regular communities sitting at home in isolation. But the optimism is, yes, we will open businesses fairly soon, it seems like, even though there's still a lot of question marks out there. 
But what we don't know is the regulations behind how we're going to open our businesses. And from a restaurant perspective, number one, it's for certain we're going to be asked to probably cut our occupancy by 50% because we'll have to create social distancing between diners, number one. Number two, if we were to do that, are we getting the 50% break because our costs are still going to be at 100% while we're being asked to operate at 50%. The next level, obviously, is how we're going to manage customer confidence and health and safety within all our environments. So accessible PPE, you know, and how much accessible PPE is overdrive? How much, uh, you know, hand sanitizer can you have in a place? You're going to have to, you know, temperature check everyone. Everyone's going to have to be geared up. And here's things that people don't talk about. We already have a shortage of PPE for frontline health workers. The demand for PPE obviously is increased. The price for PPE has gone up because of demand. And so there's another added cost that now restaurateurs and hospitality have to absorb to stay open. You know, you could just do the simple math, you know, a box of 50 masks right now or something like anywhere from 25 to $40, right? One-time use masks. You have a staff of five, who have to wear a mask and change it two or three times a day. That plus gloves, plus spray, plus having someone on compliance to watch your health and safety. All these added costs are things that are going to be a real difficult pill to swallow for us when we're going to go back and we're optimistic to work, but we're already behind the eight ball because we're probably two, three months behind on bills, supply bills, rent and everything else. So there is a level of optimism because optimism I see is the community is starting to understand, obviously, the importance of restaurants and the importance of anything hospitality that has to do with their own community. I'm not sure if you saw the video that we produced. We sent the video out for public awareness just to remind people all the different streams of hospitality that that play a part in everyone's daily lives that maybe they're not thinking about right now, but if they disappear they'll remember that and they'll miss it. So Trevor, I'm really curious to get your take on kind of where the industry will be headed and what the reopening of all of these different establishments might look like. But just before we get to that, you know, everybody has been affected by this pandemic in some way, shape or form. And, you know, everybody has been dealt their own challenges. There's no doubt. Again, specific to sort of hospitality and the restaurant industries, it happened fast, it happened swift, and nobody was sort of absolved from that. It was just industry-wide boom. So I'm wondering if you can let everybody into your world, into the world of your contemporaries in terms of the difficult decisions that had to be made very, very quickly the moment that this really became a problem. Other than the obvious things of you know rent and all those other ex- fixed expenses that you have, there's definitely a human side to this, right? Uh, luckily for my business, we didn't have a lot of fixed labor, but we still had a couple people And if you think about all the restaurants out there that employ full-time people, there is a human side to where these people earn a living. What are they going to do next? And so the decision there, what came fast and furious was because in the beginning, there was no 75% wage subsidy. There was options for EI, but to get EI, you needed to be laid off, right? And then when you laid someone off and you wanted to bring them back, you took them off EI and then they had to decide if making a 75% wage was better than taking EI and how long would that last for? And then the self-employment, you know, uh, unemployment was also the same thing, right? Government was offering $2,000. But in the beginning, if you took any income, 
even if it was a penny on the hundred that you would make, you couldn't qualify for it. So that was another two or three week delay. And so that's the human side behind of it. That is probably the most difficult part. And to understand what this means for a lot of people who really relied on those day-to-day jobs, being in a kitchen, not only because of the joy of doing it, but being employed was tough. That has been the hardest part to really understand that there are people out there in our hospitality community who have struggled to make rent and to put food on their own table through this entire pandemic. You know, that's something, how is this going to affect us in the long run? And we haven't even got into the mental the mental part of this, right? From a mental health perspective. That's an entirely separate conversation on its own, but let's touch on that. You know, I've heard from researchers too that the rate of depression, anxiety, and even PTSD will be on the rise shortly and definitely post-COVID. For yourself and what you've seen from your colleagues and those closest to you, Have you found that you've seen an immediate impact on how you operate day to day because of the emotional and mental stress that this entire situation obviously has had on everyone? Yeah, I think the most important thing is to understand that everyone's situation, number one, is different and that we have to have sympathy and be empathetic that we are all struggling in the crisis together. Whether you're an employee or a business owner, we all have our own struggles. We all live our own day-to-day lives. Part of it is it's obviously not healthy in the beginning when you're isolated in your home for 24 hours a day for however long you need to be with endless time to just think about this. And all the other things is if you turn on your computer, your phone, or the TV, is all this junk that continues to basically flood our feeds, right? So we're, we're not positioned in a place that helps us with mental health wellness. Uh, what I have seen is that bright side of this is the amount of people that reach out and initiate conversations that you might not otherwise think you had those relationships with has really helped, right? And I think that our community, particularly in the restaurant side, we've really rallied as a community together. Uh, we have a couple of you know really strong initiatives that have been put together to help sort of spread the message and provide education and content for community on our efforts to bring our businesses back. You know, businesses right now that are not even open, that decided to open their kitchen and they went in there and started cooking to help feed those in need, whether it's shelters, homeless, or frontline workers. And that's not without the efforts of people who have donated money to help them with that. So I think that The short term and long term, I mean, I can't speak for everyone else. For me, because the first couple of weeks was kind of tough for me too, struggling with doomsday, what is going to happen, businesses are shut down, I don't have any idea of what I'm going to do. There was a level of that for all of us, for myself included. But at some point, I was able to sort of snap out of it and sort of get myself back up on my feet, put some gel in my hair, put some pants on and say, let's get to work. That level of sort of uh, transition isn't the same for everyone. And so it's really important for us to really check in on all our community and all our colleagues that we know are out there that are part of our communities. Yeah, I can't agree with you more. I've thought a lot about how this experience would be if we weren't a part of the digital age. You know, we're staying connected so easily now, especially with FaceTime and, you know, through content, through many different channels and sticking with channels. I've noticed that 
a lot of people in the food industry have made some pretty strong and positive pivots, whether it's just staying active on social media, creating recipes, doing Instagram lives, whatever it is. But have you noticed any positive pivots from your colleagues that others should maybe consider to strengthen their lifeline? I know that you said that you have a few initiatives or programs on the go right now, too. There's some great people doing great things out there. So if you take a look at businesses alone, those that you know have moved to take out because you can't dine in, have now added different streams of business, right? Which is, let's do um, family meal planning for people, which includes recipe kits. So people can cook at home the best dishes that they can get while eating, dining in. I can now have that packet with instructions to take home and eat. Some of these businesses have also transitioned to doing curated grocery experiences, right? Because now I can get a box of essentials from my restaurant when I order food from them as well. I don't have the data in terms of how effective that is for a lot of people, but it certainly helps. You know, there are guys out there right now that have created really great virtual content, uh, whether it's from online IG talks or, or conferences or, or, you know, discussions like this on podcasts. And then there's people that have created really good live content with recipe creation and doing a live recipe cooking show every day. It, the number isn't that big because we have to understand there's a couple variables that we have to consider. One is you have to have the wherewithal, patience and drive to figure out the tech side of it. Number two, you have to be someone who's not afraid to be in front of a camera as well. And, you know, as I think it's a lot different for us to post a selfie with our family as opposed to, okay, I'm going to go on IG Live and do a cooking seminar for the next 30 minutes. But there are guys out there that have really thrived and done a good job. You know, one of the brands I'm working with right now, Dairy Farmers of Ontario, they had contacted me to be part of a curation team. And you might know a couple of these names, myself, Jasmine Baker and Afrin Pristine. We were tasked with essentially working with dairy farmers to help expose the beautiful dairy products we have from our local producers, Ontario, and take that and find chefs who could create at-home recipes with Ontario dairy products, which we would then share with the public. And this is a great initiative because number one, it's getting chefs, number one, who number for many reasons probably didn't have time to do recipe writing to share with the public. Number two, they're now sharing recipes that probably weren't meant to be shared. So people get to look into the life of some of their favorite chefs. And so our campaign, which originally started with 20 chefs and 25 recipes, is probably going to expand up to 80 recipes up until June. And then eventually all the recipes will be curated into a digital cookbook, which people can just go online and grab. And I think, you know, this it shows great sort of progressive thought process from a brand that said, you know, we had money that we had to spend on marketing anyway. But let's let's respin it, find a way we can do it where it works, supporting producers, supporting our hospitality commuting, and also providing really good content for everyday chefs at home because everyone is cooking right now. And although they're probably at a fatigue of cooking twenty one meals a day, twenty one meals in a week. If they can create something that Chef Mark McEwen, who is on our roster, is going to share with them in a way he's adapted it for at-home hack cooking, because we're not going to tell people to go out and get ingredients that are impossible to find. We're basically teaching people to cook with what they have in their pantries and in their fridges. So that's been really cool to find things like that in the marketplace. And I think there's a lot of brands that are doing that right now. So it's really interesting to hear about all of these pivots. And I think, Bridget, you know, we would see that too if you're just kind of 
scrolling through Instagram, looking at YouTube, you're seeing a lot of cooking at home tutorials and meal planning and things of that nature. It's been kind of interesting to see everybody spending more time thinking about cooking. Now, obviously, big picture, you wonder how that's going to impact the industry as things reopen and what the future might hold. So um, Trevor, for yourself, being so connected to chefs and to restaurateurs and to the industry in general, when you are having those discussions amongst your community, when you are checking in with friends, what's the general sort of consensus or, or what are some of the thoughts that are being discussed in terms of where this is headed and how this will affect the industry long term? So one, I think our restaurant industry and maybe the economy and the way it works as a whole has changed forever. There's a couple aspects and we have discussed this in a couple circles. It's great to see everyone cooking at home and baking and making all these things. But will that have a long-term effect on the hospitality industry? Because now people have learned to self-survive on their own and find a new love for cooking. Will they cook more at home, which means it's going to displace more meals that we were counting on, maybe for short-term, maybe for long-term. We don't know that. So there's a good and bad to that. You know, the other side is we all yearn for human contact. We need the ability to socialize in person. And I think there's a part of us that really wants to just get everyone back together just to, you know, in person express how much we appreciate each other and share that glass of wine or share that coffee. Part of that challenge, obviously, is what are those parameters going to be? And if some of those parameters are so restrictive, for instance, if I want to call Bridget and say, Bridget, let's go grab a glass of wine and share pizza. Because we don't live in the same household, Do we have to sit six feet apart? That experience will not be the same experience that we want. And will we just say, you know, forget it. I'm not going to go out. And so I think these things will have a certain effect on how our businesses are run. Now, the other thing is a lot of of people are saying that what this pandemic has provided is it's provided a bit of a correction in all industries. But if we take a look at our restaurant industry, it's, it's a correction in terms of all the traditionally poor performers that were just taking up space and not making money will unfortunately be victims in all of this. And that's, you know, that's the stark reality is that many of our restaurants are restaurants that are independently owned, a lot of new Canadians, people that have put all their money into this as their own venture that they're going to lose. And that is the real sad reality behind all of this. But at the same time, what people are saying is, well, maybe we have too many restaurants. Does this correct the cycle and, give us less to draw from, but more quality. I don't know. I mean, I think everyone deserves an opportunity to own their own business. And and I hate to see anyone have to be a victim in all this. We know that after the first month of the pandemic, that 10% of the restaurants in Canada that were forced to close because of COVID will close permanently. And that was only after the first month. I think that number is going to continue to rise. I've been thinking a lot, especially as a self-employed individual, I've been thinking a lot about the next wave, the next wave of entrepreneurs, the next wave of restaurateurs, the next wave in the gig economy. What do you think the next wave is going to look like in the hospitality industry? Do you think this entire experience will turn off those people who once upon a time had that dream of opening their own restaurant, of starting their own event. Do you think this is probably a huge deterrent for them? I don't know if it's a deterrent. I think it's going to be a way of how you can find a way to survive. There is no doubt in my mind that because of what's going on and because of the unfortunate result of businesses closing, 
that there will be an influx of commercial spaces available. I believe that there will be an influx of commercial spaces that will be available probably at very unique agreements because the space needs to be filled. I also believe that there will be a lot of commercial equipment that will be made available because they had to close and things have to be liquidated. So there's a side of this where maybe people who got through this and weren't prepared before all of this to get into a space and open their own restaurant have learned to survive through this, took this time to redevelop a business plan and to redevelop sort of a new business model can maybe now afford to get into a place that they couldn't afford to before. I think that there's going to be those opportunities. The other thing what we found is that if we were to pull restaurants in general and see how many of restaurants in, let's just say Toronto, for instance, we'll just take one big city. If we were to walk down a major city block and there were 20 restaurants, how many of those restaurants are are non sort of mainstream chain or sort of modern restaurants and may just be mom and pop shops. Now, a lot of these mom and pop shops, even those are not mom and pop shops, were not very well positioned from a perspective of what their capability was online whether it was website, merchant services, social media. And so those that have really pivoted really fast and found a way to recreate their business online and recreate the ease of access and contactless payment and curbside pickup and do everything linked to social media and their website, I think those the ones that got there first are the ones that are doing really well right now. I think that's the space where is going to change the most. So web developers, if you're good at developing websites with a strong backend for merchant services, you know, like integrating a Shopify where I can go through, click, click, click. And now I know that I get a notification that on Tuesday, my pickup time is six o'clock at curb and my food and my groceries are there. Those are the guys that are going to succeed. And so I think those are some opportunities. I think that's going to be the new sort of economic model for restaurants if they want to survive, because we're not going to be able to fill our restaurants with people yet. So if I'm going back to my restaurant space, I have to be prepared to understand that I'm not filling my restaurant for a long time. So how am I going to make up that revenue stream? So Trevor, these are all questions about what the future might look like. And I guess the biggest challenge for a lot of people, and even for myself running a business is it's difficult to plan. How do you plan when you don't know what the future holds or how long it will take until we can get back to some semblance of normalcy. So I would imagine that yourself and many of your colleagues are working out different scenarios. We talked earlier about the MBA, like Adam Silver and the MBA have discussed, maybe we'll have neutral site where all games will be played in one area, or maybe there will be one site on the East Coast and one on the West Coast where they'll host playoffs. There's all these different scenarios being mapped out by different organizations. So amongst people in the hospitality and restaurant business, what are some of those scenarios for a rollout? What does that look like? And I guess perhaps most importantly, what would be a best case scenario? What would you guys hope and plan for? Best case scenario, let's get a vaccine so we don't have to worry about this. I think we all know from a realistic perspective, that's not probably in the cards for at least, you know, another year. And the fear obviously is whether or not this virus will come back if, if we're not careful. It's tough to say what the perfect scenario is. The one thing that we know, regardless of whether or not we know the future or where this leads, or whether if it wasn't this or it's the this Asian beetle that's going to kill everyone, this Asian hornet that's going to kill everyone, people have to eat no matter what. That equation has not changed. 
the three meals you ate before the pandemic, you still have to eat today. And so we just need to figure out how we're going to grab a piece of that pie and make it work. I think the grocery stores were well positioned for the pandemic. Number one, over the last five years, grocery stores had already taken a chunk out of our business by increasing take-home meals, whether it was sushi, rotisserie chicken, pizza, chicken fingers, all that stuff that you saw the second you walked into a major grocery store, that was the money that they were making. They weren't making money on groceries, right? Because the markup on groceries is very low. They were making their money on prepared meals. And so they were already well positioned for this. I think this positions them really well because people are going to go back to the grocery store and say, you know, I got to watch my dollars and cents. How am I going to do this? I'm going to buy my grocery. I'm going to get prepared meals at the same time. What I'm saying here is that best case scenario is we just have to be very creative in trying to figure out how we're going to be part of the new economy because people eating will not change. It's just how they're going to eat and what they're going to eat. And I think that's what we're all trying to figure out right now. Restaurants that are doing at-home grocery. For some of these guys, it might be working really well for them. And maybe that's the new economy. You know, if I'm going to go to Ascarian King and I love eating their carbonara, maybe that carbonara recipe kit that they're putting into that grocery box is something that I want to get once a week now. Right? So I think there's certain types of hybrids that I see that will go gangbusters. And I think, you know, a lot of these at-home recipe kits that people were already doing, like, you know, the Get Freshes and stuff like that, the HelloFresh stuff, that was already, you know, gaining some momentum. I think that's going to continue to gain momentum. The other thing I believe that has changed is our perspective on how we're going to support our local economies. I think we're super hyper-local now. We don't all know, but here's an issue we have in Canada. We have, we have a huge debt ratio. Consumer debt ratio is higher than it is in the U.S. We're actually the highest out of all eight or G20 countries, right? Developed countries, we have the highest debt ratio. The other thing is for Canada, we are highly reliant on export trades, oil and gas industry, both of which completely disappeared. And so that has complete trickle-down theory effect on consumers like us in restaurants, right? We need to really find a way to support and we haven't talked about our supply chain and how the farmers are, are suffering right now. So I think people are really focused on buying as hyper-local as possible right now. And I don't think that's going to change for a while. I think people will see this as an advantage to support local because that's all we have access to right now. You know, with every disaster or pandemic, there is opportunity. We just have to figure out what those opportunities are. Hard for me to peg what that is. I'm still trying to figure it out myself because it might be good for a month. But if the crisis comes back and our bars and our restaurants were full, they're going to be empty all over again. I mean, it might be early to ask you this now, Trev, but throughout this entire process, I'm sure your brain has been uh, getting creative as well. Have you thought about what a potential next step might be for you? Yeah, it changes every single day. I'll tell you one thing. I'm kind of tired of cooking because I'm doing a lot of cooking at home, doing a lot of recipe testing, and I'm cooking things that I've never in a million years that I'd ever cook. Sorry, let me just try to understand that. Trevor is tired of cooking. I never thought I'd hear you say that. I'll put it this way. Even pre-COVID, I was not cooking that much, right? You know, the teams were cooking. I was really more focused on running the businesses. And so I did a lot of my stuff. If you saw me cooking, it was generally on CityLine or morning TV. I didn't do that much cooking other than at home or recipe testing. So I wasn't really doing day-to-day grind in the kitchen anymore. I was just focused on sort of running the businesses. So 
in a good way, it's forced me back into the kitchen to do more recipe development and more stuff that I didn't think I'd, I'd be doing at this rate. But I'm kind of tired of it now after seven weeks. I'm, I want to go back and run businesses. I want to go back and like produce events and produce catering for 500 people because it's fun to see 500 people with smiles on their faces eating. I mean, I'd like to see if that world still exists because I want to go back to that. But there has been a lot of moments. There have been a lot of moments, in the, particularly in the first four weeks of the pandemic, that I looked every day down at my computer in the business and whether or not that I wanted to be back in the food business when I left, like when this was all over. Because the risk is so high and we don't know what is on the other side of the horizon and, and what the future holds for us and that it's such a volatile, commodity-driven business. So the ability to create more content and, you know, Bridget, you are on my top five of content people out there. I'm a little on the older side, so I'm still behind the curve and trying to finish that. I know my, my cookbook was slated to come out in February, which was 90% done. And now that's been delayed. It's hard to say. I'm still trying to figure it out. There's a lot of things sort of in my head rolling around, but I haven't landed on one yet. I'll be perfectly honest. Probably in the last four weeks, I've created four new brands and four new menus. And then I look at them and I'm like, yeah, this isn't going to work. And I just file them away because I'm thinking to myself, do I actually really want to do this? And it's hard to say. It really, really is hard to say. You know, maybe I get to go back to focusing on helping clients. You know, I'm doing a little bit of work with academia as well. And, you know, maybe that's a space that I want to be in, in terms of, I don't want to use the word consult, but providing techniques and ways on how to help people with their businesses. But at the end of the day, like, I'm not going to lie. I can only be away for so much because there's something for all of us in this industry. There's something about this business that we love, right? It's the people, it's being in the kitchen, it's building something new. All that creativity is something that keeps us going. That's what we strive for. We don't really do it for the money. We do it, number one, if we can survive on it. But number two, it's our passion for doing it. And so as long as the passion is there, even though I say to you, I don't want to do it, I don't want to cook anymore, I'll never stop. <laughs> it's just a matter of doing it differently. So Yeah, I think the silver lining for a lot of us during this period is that it's allowed us the time to really reflect on how far we've come, reflect on maybe what's important to us right now. And even though many of us don't know what the future holds or what's next in our careers and our next endeavors, I think that even putting pen to paper like you have with creating four new brands is a good start to kind of get the engine going and keeping that creativity alive. So there's one silver lining. I think that's a good one to hold on to. You know, the creativity hasn't stopped, but I think like for a lot of us, we've also taken this time to really take a step back and enjoy the things that we really weren't taking the time to enjoy that. Heck, I haven't, you know, been closer than six or 10 feet with my daughter for more than two months. So I missed my time with my daughter. I missed time with my family. But at the same time, I wasn't calling my mom as much as I'm doing now. This is going to remind me that I need to go back to the human side of the things that are important. And, you know, the other thing is I've been in isolation with my wife for nearly two months. We haven't killed each other. In fact, we've learned to survive and coexist and learn a lot of, about each other in this time. We weren't doing this in our normal day lives, right? We were busy filling our lives with things that we could have put on hold, but we didn't. We overworked ourselves. We never slept. Uh, we weren't healthy. We went overdrive on everything. But now we worry about our health. We worry about our family. We worry about our friends. And we really cherish those moments on the phone or on Zoom or being able to deliver 
a home cooked meal to one of our loved ones. Like these, these are the little things that we really took for granted. So I think there's a human side to this that we've all gotten better from. Unfortunately, it took a pandemic. I honestly cannot thank you enough for speaking so candidly and sharing your experiences with us, Trev. Really appreciate it. And keep us posted on where you're headed next. Well, guys, thank you for the opportunity. Always great to talk to you guys. You know, I, I do want to take a moment to thank sort of everyone who's out there through all of this, particularly all our essential workers, healthcare workers, frontline delivery people, restaurant workers. And uh, stay safe. And we will be there on the other side waiting when we're all ready to grab a cheers and get through this and share a meal again together. Absolutely. I'll have that wine and pizza waiting for you. I'd like about 10 of those. Thank you so much, Trev. Take good care. 